welcome to the Redeemer 20 Sermon Podcast, where our goal is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. My name is Luke Dirks, and I'm your host, and I'm also privileged to lead the 20s ministry at Redeemer Church in beautiful Rockford, Illinois. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at our Thursday night gathering at 7 p.m. We hope you enjoy this, and we hope you also join us at a future Thursday. kind of like the flowers in our neighborhood. I go on walks and I've noticed they're starting to blossom. And so the 20s blossom in the spring and they come back to hear the word preached. So we're super excited that you're here. Um, How many of you are new tonight? Just a show of hands. Okay, that is actually a pretty decent amount. So welcome. Um, You guys have not, some of you met me, some of you haven't, but my name is uh, Pastor Alex. I serve at the church and Uh, I have the privilege of preaching tonight, and as we open up, I wanted to talk to you guys uh, real quick about a book I decided to pick up a while back and read, and if you haven't read this story before, it's called Pilgrim's Progress. It's a great book, and it follows a man named Christian as he goes on a journey to a place called the Celestial City, and uh, I've been reading through it for the last couple weeks, and one of the things that caught my attention as I've been reading it was that Christian, from the very beginning, has this huge burden uh, that's stuck on his back. And so no matter where he goes or who he meets, he can't get rid of the thing, and it uh, makes all the obstacles that he has to face on the journey that much more difficult. And that stuck in my mind, not so much because of this, the actual book, but because of the storybook version I grew up reading as a kid. It's called Dangerous Journey. And I don't know if any of you have read this, but I grew up reading this as a kid, and uh, The reason I brought it is because specifically the way that they draw Christian's burden. And so I actually have a picture I'm going to throw up on the screen rather than try and make you all look at that thing. And so hopefully it goes up behind me. But as he's putting it up, yeah, there it is. On the left, what you can see is that is Christian. And then on the right is Mr. Worldly Wiseman. And so he's kind of flamboyant. But Christian, (laughs) I don't know why. Christian, he has this burden, and it's kind of a very helpful visual aid because it's kind of this ugly and tattered, uh, ragged thing, and it's almost as big as Christian is, and that's the way that they portray him the entire story. So you can never mistake who Christian is. He's always the one with the giant burden, and the point is that it's a very ugly thing, and it's almost unavoidable. And the reason I share that with you as we begin is because many of us walked in the doors tonight carrying a very similar burden. And it may not be as visible as Christians, but it's just as ugly. And we all have a desire in us to hide it from other people. And the Bible calls that desire shame. And so the title of my sermon tonight is The Burden of Shame. And it's what Adam and Eve felt in the garden after they disobeyed God. Before, if you look at the very beginning in Genesis, it says that they were naked and unashamed. But as soon as they took the first bite of the fruit, it says their eyes were open to their nakedness, and they tried to sew fig leaves together so that they could cover themselves up. And this wasn't because their nakedness was inherently sinful, but because they had become inherently sinful. And they didn't want God or each other or anyone else to see their brokenness. And we as their long-distant children 
um, we share that same desire today. Only we don't try to use fig leaves to cover it up, do we? (laughs) That would be kind of (laughs) weird. So no, not at all. Instead, I think we turn to other methods to hide our shame. And if I were to just kind of take the pulse of our generation, I would say that generally there are two ways we try to cover up our shame. The first is that we make excuses for it. We try to justify whatever it is we're ashamed of. The second is that we turn to our good works and we try to use those, everything good I've ever done, to hide my shame. And the problem is that neither of those methods work. Even if you have the best excuse or the best track record, shame usually still finds a way to show its ugly face in your life and in mine. And my concern for this ministry specifically for 20s, would be that there are some of us in this room who are trying to cover up our shame in the wrong ways. And the result is that we look a lot like Christian spiritually, and we have this massive burden on our backs that's completely unnecessary. So my question for you this evening is how do you deal with shame? If it's the morning after your mess up, what do you do about it? Do you start making excuses for yourself? Do you start trying harder or is it something else? And as a follow-up to that question, have you been satisfied with the results? Has it helped you get rid of your shame? Maybe if we're all just a little bit honest with ourselves tonight, there's then we would admit that there's something in the back, kind of deeper corner of our mind that we're still ashamed of. And if that's the case, can I just say that there's still hope? Because God has sent Jesus Christ. And he is the permanent solution for the burden of our shame. And thankfully, we get to see that solution in action tonight in the Gospel of John. So, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me in them to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Specifically, we're going to be in verses 1 through 11 tonight. And as you turn there, you might notice that there is something a little bit different about this text. If, it's, if your version of the scriptures is anything like mine, at the top it says, the earliest manuscripts do not include John chapter 7, verse 53 through 8, 11. Some of you might have questions about that. And so before we jump into the passage, before I talk about shame, I want to take just a little bit of a detour to explain what this means. And simply put, that line exists in your Bible because of a practice called textual criticism. Textual criticism. And what that is, is it is the practice of studying the ancient manuscripts, looking for transcription errors in the Bible. So these people who study lower textual criticism, they take the oldest and um, strongest copies of the Greek and the Hebrew texts, and then they, in, they translate them, and then they compare them to your ESV, your NIV, your CSV, whatever you might have, and they see how well they line up. And this is actually one of the greatest arguments we have for why we can trust the Bible. 
because textual criticism is a very objective science. There's no subjectivity to it. Either it matches up or it doesn't. And what the science shows is that our current versions of Scripture are over 99.5% accurate to the original text, which are over 2,000 years old. And what that means, if you don't fully grasp that, is that the Bible is the most historically accurate document in existence today. Scientifically proven. But when you come to this passage, we have that little blurb at the top. So what does that mean? Well, in lower textual criticism, this practice, what they have found is that John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, does not belong in this part of your Bible. This was not in any of the earliest Greek translations that they have. They don't find John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. And because of that, a lot of Bibles either put this little heading at the top saying, hey, this doesn't belong here, or they just take it out completely. Does anyone have that tonight? That would be really awkward if I said, open to John chapter 8, verse 1, and you're like, there is no John chapter 8. So, okay, that's good. But you might have the note at the top. And if it's there, you might wonder, well, if this isn't original to the text, then how did it get here, and why do we keep it here? To answer that first question, um, what most scholars believe is that this was a story that circulated through the church very early on that then was later added to the Gospel of John. And the reason they added it was because it fit the Gospel of John chapter 8 specifically because of its theme. So if you look with me at John chapter 8, verse 14, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. And what he says to them, oh, actually verse 15, he says, you judge according to the flesh, yet I judge no one. And so the theme is Jesus, this idea of him withholding judgment. Do you see that? And the story of the adulterous woman, the one we're going to look at tonight, displays the outworking of that theme. So people believe Okay, these two things pair up. We're going to put this story of the Bible right here in the passage. And this leads to the final question, and then we're going to move on. But if this is not original to John's gospel, and people added it in, even if it was very early on, at a later date, should we read it, and should we preach it? And the truth is, believers have different answers to that question, but the way I answer it is yes. Yes, we should read this part of the Bible, and yes, we should preach it. And rather than explain how I got to that point, it would take a long time, I'm going to let R.C. Sproul explain it for me. So he is a theologian, and when he was teaching on this in one of his lectures, here's what he had to say. The overwhelming consensus of textual critics is that John chapter 8 verses 1 through 11 was not part of the original gospel of John, at least not at this portion of John. At the same time, though, the overwhelming consensus is that this account is authentic, apostolic, and it should be contained in any edition of the New Testament. I believe it is nothing less than the Word of God. I think Sproul has a good answer, and I agree with him. <laughs> I think John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11 is the authoritative Word of God that we should preach it, and that is why I'm not going to skip it tonight. Now, having said that, I do think it's prudent, I think it's wise that if you are going to read this passage or preach anything authoritative from it, it should be in connection with other passages of Scripture, just in case R.C. and I are wrong. So that's what I plan to do tonight. 
Um, we're going to look at this, but also connect it to other passages of Scripture. And if you have any other questions about that whole kind of concept of textual criticism, I would love to talk to you at the end. But that's all I'm going to say today. Now, as we move on to the actual text, I'm going to ask, would you guys all stand with me? I'll read from verse 53. It says, they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them, and the scribes and the Pharisees then brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery, and placing her in their midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? And this they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. But Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. You guys can take a seat. This is one of the more famous passages of scripture, and at the beginning I showed us all that picture of Christian's burden, and I think it's safe to say that this woman in this moment would have been feeling a very similar one on her back. We're not told all the details, but I think we're told enough. The Pharisees catch her in the act of adultery. They drag her to the temple. They publicly expose her and humiliate her for her sin. They condemn her for it, and then they throw her before Jesus in the crowd. And what I love about this passage is that it's at this moment that she meets Jesus. And Jesus doesn't try to make excuses for what she did. And he doesn't try to make her pay for it either. Instead, he offers her his grace. And I believe it is the same grace that we need for whatever burdens we carried in the door tonight. So with the rest of our time, I want to lean into this passage with you and see what does Jesus have to say to the burden of our shame. And if any of you are taking notes, my first point is that he alone can judge it. Christ alone can judge our shame. And I take this from verse 7. But before we get there, we have to look at the context. So back in verse 2, we see that Jesus is coming down from the Mount of Olives, and he goes to the temple of Jerusalem to start preaching to everybody. And notice, who does it say came out to hear him? Was it just a couple people? Was it just, you know, maybe the people who were already at the temple? They're like, oh, Jesus is here. I guess we'll listen to him. Who does it say? All. All the people came to hear him. You think our Easter service was impressive? 
Imagine if the entire city of Rockford had shown up to that service. That's what happens here. All of Jerusalem empties out. Every person goes to the temple, and they're all listening to Jesus. This would have made Sports Corps 2 look like a small group get-together. And the reason that matters is because the temple would have been packed out, and every single person in the city would have been there to see what happens next. Verse 3 says that after Jesus began teaching, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. And so they pushed their way to the front of the crowd and they threw the girl before Jesus just so they could ask him their question. But it raises a different question, doesn't it? This may come as a shock to some of you, but adultery takes more than one person. So where's the guy? When the Pharisees showed up, did he flee for his life? Did he somehow escape from them? Or is it that the Pharisees, in an extreme display of chauvinism, chose to target the person they knew was more vulnerable? I don't think the man had to run away. And in either case, the woman is the only one that's brought to Jesus. And when they get there, the Pharisees make their grandiose statement. You can almost see it. The whole crowd's there, and they throw this woman in front of Jesus, and they say, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says we should stone such a woman. So what do you say? What do you say, Jesus? That's the main question in this entire passage. And John actually interprets for us what's going on here in verse 6. He says, they asked this question as a test for Jesus. So they might bring a charge against him. So it was a trap. It was a trap meant to bring him down. Because seemingly there's only two answers to that question. The first is that Jesus could agree with the Pharisees in this moment. And have them stone the woman to death. The second option is he could disagree with them and tell them to let her go. Going against what the law said in the Old Testament. And in both of those options, I hope you see that he's condemned. Because the problem is, if he went with the first option, it would not only ruin his reputation as the friend of sinners. If he has this woman stoned, all the prostitutes, all the tax collectors, they're not going to want to be with Jesus anymore. But even more than that, he would be breaking the Roman law. At this time, Israel was a proxy nation in the Roman Empire, and it was illegal for anyone but a Roman authority to execute the death penalty. This is why at the crucifixion, Jesus is condemned by Pontius Pilate and not the high priest Caiaphas. It's because the Jews didn't have the authority to kill anyone. And so if Jesus agreed with the law and had the woman stoned, the first thing the Pharisees would have done is run to the authorities and had him arrested. So he can't make that decision. He can't answer it that way. But at the same time, if he disagreed with the Pharisees and said the woman shouldn't be stoned, then he was going to be against the law. And the Pharisees would have been able to condemn him as a heretic, and he would have lost his ability to preach to the people. 
It seemed like a lose-lose situation. But look at his response. Verse 6 again. This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. But Jesus bent down, and he wrote with his finger on the ground. And they continued to ask him, and so eventually he stood up and he said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and he wrote on the ground. It's not the answer that the Pharisees were expecting. He kind of takes the third route, (laughs) so to speak. And this response right here has actually raised more speculation within Christian circles than almost any other passage of Scripture. Everybody wants to know what Jesus wrote on the ground. And I'll be honest, I couldn't resist. (laughs) So I'm going to tell you what I think it was. I believe that what Jesus wrote here was actually the law of God. I think it was the Ten Commandments that he was writing. And here's why I think that. I have some evidence to back it up. Notice that before Jesus gives them his verbal answer, it says he bent down and he wrote with his finger. I want you to remember that. And now listen to Exodus chapter 31, verse 18. This comes right after God descended upon Mount Sinai, and all the people of Israel were gathered, and Moses went up to meet him. It says that God gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. You notice the language? It's the exact same. Now come back to John chapter 8. It says that after Jesus bent down and wrote, they continued to ask him, and he stood up and answered. And then once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. Now why is that important that Jesus does it twice? Think back to Exodus again. When God gave Moses the law, was it a one-and-done situation? No. Israel fell into sin and started worshiping the golden calf while Moses was on the mountain. And so when he came down, it says that in his rage, he threw the law down and shattered it. And then he had to go make intercession for the people of Israel. And it's only after he did that, that he had to go back up the mountain. And guess what Exodus chapter 34 says? That he was given the law again, and it was written by God. So do you see the parallel? This is, where I, this is how I take it. God comes down to Sinai, writes the law. Then he has to do it again. Jesus, mirroring what his father did, bends down and writes the law. He stands up and answers, bends down and writes the law again. I think what he was doing is that he was trying to show the Pharisees who he was as he told them and revealed their sin. So, that's my guess. (laughs) That could be totally off base. (laughs) But regardless, in either case, whatever it is, the whole answer was meant to show the Pharisees that they weren't qualified to judge this woman's shame. Again, when he first stood up and answered, he said, if any of you is without sin... Let him be the one to cast the first stone. And this was a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 22, 
verse 22, which required the witness of this kind of crime. If you were the witness and you brought it to court, you were the first one who had to throw the stone. And not only that, you had to be innocent of the crime yourself. So referencing this verse, I think it exposed the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Because like many of the societies, even today in our world, when it came to sexual sins in the Jewish culture, women were more likely to be legally and socially punished than men. A man could lead a so-called respectable life while hiding the exact same sins that a woman would be condemned for. And so to defend this adulterous woman, Jesus just cuts through the double standard. And the Pharisees end up walking away. Why? Because none of them were innocent of the sin that they were planning to stone the woman for. And therefore, none of them could judge the woman. In fact, the only person who was there that day that could judge the woman was Jesus himself. He was the only one who met the required standard. He was the only one there with no sin. And this is good news. Because it means that ultimately, Jesus is the only one who can judge shame in a way that carries consequence. As it says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Don't miss this. In your life, you will have friends who judge you for your shame. You will have family members who judge you for your shame. There will be people at this church probably who judge you for your shame. And you most certainly will judge yourself for your shame. But the only one at the end of the day who can give a verdict on your shame that carries eternal weight is Jesus Christ. And that does not mean that the judgment and the authority of other things in this world is just thrown away, but it means that the only voice that you ultimately need to care about is the voice of Jesus Christ. And that is good news because of the grace that immediately follows in this passage. It ties into my second point, which is that Christ alone can pardon our shame. If the first point is that only Christ can judge it, then the second is that only he can pardon it. And I take this from verses 9 through the first half of 11. It says that when the Pharisees heard Jesus' response, they went away one by one, beginning with the older one. Probably because they had more sin in their life. And then Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Those are some of the most amazing words that woman could have heard at that moment. I don't condemn you. And notice that Jesus doesn't even ask her if she's guilty. He knows she is. That's the whole point. She had sinned. And he's not surprised by it. 
Instead, what he does is he finally answers the question that the Pharisees asked at the beginning. What do you say? And he looks at her and he says, I don't condemn you. It kind of reminds me of what he said earlier in the Gospel of John. John chapter 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And listen to verse 17. It's the key. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. And whoever believes in him is not condemned. That's the good news, isn't it? That those who believe in Jesus will not be condemned for their shame, but rather they will be pardoned and they will be saved. It won't matter how ugly the shame is. It won't matter how much it hurt you or someone else. It won't matter how terrified you are of it or how gross or sick it makes you feel. When you come to Jesus, he alone can say, I do not condemn you. That is the good news that the adulterous woman experienced firsthand. And how did she respond to it? By calling Jesus Lord. Do you notice that? She only says three words in this whole thing. And it's after Jesus asks her, has no one condemned you? She doesn't try to make excuses. She doesn't try to excuse, you know, explain the whole situation, how I ended up in there. None. All she says, no one, Lord. She calls him Lord. And I think that's worth noting because in the Greek, the term is kurios. It literally means master. And when you would use it to address someone, what you would be saying to them is that I submit myself to you because you are greater. And it's the exact same term that the Jews gave to God. They called him kurios. And this woman, in an act of faith, used the exact same language to address Jesus. Because she recognized who he was in that moment. And she put her faith in him. Which is why he can say to her, I do not condemn you. It was because her faith was in Jesus that he could pardon her sin. And the shame that she felt for it. And notice, it's not just by dismissing it. But by taking it upon himself. That Jesus is able to take away shame. I think the key verse is Hebrews 12 too. It says, let us look to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. It was our sin, and it was our shame, that Jesus took to the cross. And I hope you see the picture. Because when Jesus came down, it isn't just that he put one burden on his back and took it up to Calvary's hill. No, he took the burden that we looked at at the beginning, the one that each of us have, and he stacked it on top of the other. And not only for me and for you and for everyone in this room, but for everyone who ever believed in him. And so that if we were to see it, we wouldn't even be able to look up high enough to see where the burden went. And it is then that he climbed on the tree and was nailed to the cross so that he could take away our shame. 
And it is because he has done this that he is the only one who can say, I do not condemn you. And it is his delight to say those words to those who believe in him. So if you're here and you don't call Jesus Lord, then the free offer of grace is here now. Don't put off the day of salvation. Don't linger in the path of destruction. Take the burden of your shame and give it to Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins and believe in him and you will be saved and he will take it from you. He alone is faithful and able to pardon our shame. If you're a believer, that is our hope in this world. That Jesus can pardon our shame, but it goes even further. And this is what leads me to my last point, which is that if Christ alone can pardon our shame, then it is Christ alone who can transform our shame. Look back with me at verse 11. The adulterous woman answered Jesus, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Go and from now on sin no more. In other words, go and be transformed. Jesus does not only pardon the woman's shame, but then he commissions her to leave her old way of life, her sin, to leave it all behind. You can't stay there. I'm going to take you out of it into something new. Why? For as 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new is come. The grace of Jesus Christ transforms us into newness of life. And it frees us. If you've ever seen a caged animal released back into the wild, then I think you should understand what this looks like. When they open the gate, the animal doesn't just stay in the cage. It runs out. It flies out. And it does it with speed. And what Christ has done for us is that he has opened the doors, not just so that we can hesitantly walk out the gate, but so that we can run and pursue Jesus Christ with everything that we have. Amen. That's what he did for this woman. That's what he did to her shame. That's what he does for ours. So don't linger in the cage. Stop trying to make excuses for whatever it is you're ashamed of. That time you messed up, fooled around with someone you shouldn't have. That time you watched something you shouldn't have. That time you said something and hurt someone you shouldn't have. Stop trying to make excuses for it. Stop trying to outdo it with your good works. Turn to Jesus Christ and let him take your burden off your back. To close our time, I want to read a page from Pilgrim's Progress. It says, Now I saw in my dream that the highway up which Christian was to go was fenced on either side with a wall. 
And that wall is called salvation. Up this way, therefore, did burdened Christian run, but not without great difficulty because of the load on his back. He ran thus till he came at a place somewhat ascending, and upon that place stood a cross, and a little below in the bottom a tomb. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up with the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulder and fell from off his back and began to tumble and so continued to do till it came to the mouth of the tomb where it fell in and I saw it no more. Then Christian was glad and lightsome and said with a merry heart, he hath given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. Then he stood still a while to look and wonder For it was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross should thus ease him of his burden. Then Christian gave three leaps for joy and he went on singing. Thus far did I come loaden with my sin. Nor could aught ease the grief that I was in. Till I came hither what a place is this. Must here be the beginning of my bliss. Must here the burden fall off my back. Must hear the strings that bound it to me crack. Blessed cross, blessed tomb, blessed rather be the man that there was put to shame for me. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross and to take our shame. Lord, thank you that we don't have to make an excuse for those deep, dark, and ugly parts of ourselves, but that Jesus washes it as clean as snow. Not because of anything in us, Lord, not because we've earned it, but because you are good. God, we love you, and I pray that as we are reminded of the burden that you have carried for us, that we would love you more. I pray that we would, God, appreciate you more, that we would run faster Fly higher, God, pursue your son with everything that we have. And that the burdens that weigh us down, God, we would finally let them go. That they wouldn't hold on to us with so much power, but that, God, your spirit would free us. God, I pray that over anyone here, Lord, anyone who is struggling, anyone who feels lost, unworthy. God, I pray they would know, just like that woman, that you came to save them from their shame. So that they could be free and love you with the rest of their lives. God, we thank you for this. We give you all the glory. God, we pray it in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. To him be the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.